In this fascinating and candid interview, I talk with lucid dreaming teacher, shadow workshop leader, and Hay House author, Charlie Morley. We delve into the mysteries of lucid dreaming and how to use the practices of dream yoga to harness the third of our lives we spend sleeping as an inner laboratory of exploration, adventure, and even healing. We discuss Charlie's childhood start in lucid dreaming and how reading a book by the Dalai Lama radically changed his path from a life of gang violence and drugs to a passion for Buddhism. We explore Charlie's devotional relationship with his Guru Lama Yeshe, why the Guru-Disciple relationship is so often fraught with controversy, and how to wisely choose a spiritual teacher. So without further ado, here's Charlie Morley. So Charlie, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Now, for those of you who might not know who Charlie is, um, Charlie is a lucid dreaming teacher, shadow workshop leader, and Hay House author. Charlie's written three books. His first was Dreams of Awakening, a comprehensive manual of what Charlie calls the mindfulness of dream and sleep, his own unique approach to dream work that synthesizes the modern scientific and psychological perspectives with the traditional Milam teachings of Tibetan Buddhism. His latest book, Dreaming Through Darkness, explores shadow work through a series of 30 practical exercises. Charlie's officially authorized to teach dream yoga in the Karma Kagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism and actually lives with his new wife Jade at the Kagyu Samyutsong Buddhist Center in London, which is a satellite center of the famous Samyuling Monastery, founded in Scotland in 1967 by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and Akong Rinpoche and is now led by Akong's brother, Lama Yeshe. So once again, Charlie, it's great to have you on. Thanks for coming. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. It's great to be here. Great. Now, Charlie, not a lot of people are aware of what lucid dreaming is. Uh, I know you discovered it in your early teens. Can you tell us what is lucid dreaming and what was it about it that so fascinated you at that young age? Yeah, so a definition of uh, a lucid dream is a dream in which you know that you're dreaming as the dream is happening. So it's not just a really vivid dream. Uh, It's not a dream that you remember really well upon awakening, although it can be vivid and well-remembered. It's specifically a dream where you go, aha, I'm dreaming while the dream is happening. So you're still sound asleep, but you have woken up within the dream. Um, This has all sorts of neural correlates, like the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in the brain lights up at the same time as you're dreaming. So basically, we know this is real. This can be scientifically verified. But the subjective experience is simply a dream where you know you're dreaming as the dream is happening. And then you can start to direct the dream. Uh, It doesn't mean you're controlling it. There's no way you can control the awesome power of the unconscious, but you can befriend it and start to make requests. Requests to fly through the sky, requests to uh, have a date with Tom Hardy, or more importantly, requests to do your spiritual practice, requests to explore the nature of reality, requests to prepare for the moments of your death, requests to integrate the inner child, work with past trauma, um, help with nightmares too. If people are, uh, are working with nightmares or PTSD, then lucid dreaming, the ability to wake up within the dreams can allow people to integrate those nightmares as well. That's something quite interesting about about your uh, your particular approach, the mindfulness of dream and sleep, as you do bring in those that scientific perspective, the psychological applications, you're talking about inner child and, and uh, healing traumas and things like that, um, within this sort of context, this more traditional context of the Tibetan uh, dream yoga practices. Yeah, I mean, I, 
it's interesting. Sometimes I think people would prefer if I just went straight into full-on Tibetan dream yoga stuff. And um, we could start using all these Tibetan terms and then we'd have to translate them and they'd have to learn them. And then we'd look at the chakra system and then we'd look at the deities and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, we'd have a, a brain full of, of, of wonderful brain candy, but the applications would be limited because most of the people who come to these workshops are not Tibetan Buddhists. They haven't taken refuge. Um, a lot of that stuff would be nice brain candy, but wouldn't really um, kind of hit them in the heart. Whereas you start to talk to people about past trauma, inner child work, shadow work, um, integrating fears and phobias, learning to, or, or practicing to be the person they wish they could be in the waking state. Could they move beyond the fear that the ego places them in while they are awake? You know, these kind of things, it becomes much, much more accessible. And I guess there's somewhere down the line that I hope that this will lead people to explore the full-on Tibetan dream yoga stuff. But the longer I do this, the more I realize that actually, you know, Tibetan dream yoga isn't, you know, what makes it dream yoga isn't necessarily becoming lucid and turning yourself into a deity and saying all these mantras. Dream yoga is really about using the lucid dream state for psychospiritual growth. So in the West, if that psychospiritual growth is from integrating in a child or working with shadow, then actually there's no reason to say that's any less dream yoga-ish than somebody doing the traditional Tibetan stuff. Um, all it is is simply engaging the archetypal system in which they were raised rather than the Tibetan archetypal system. And actually shadow work is probably the best example of that because if you look at like the four stages of dream yoga, stage two in the in the traditional Tibetan teachings is transformation of fear. And it's placed in very Tibetan wording like um, uh, walk into fire knowing that you cannot be burnt, jump from a high place knowing that you cannot die. Uh, and my favorite one is call forth a tiger knowing that it cannot harm you. Uh, and then it's got these stages of what you can do when you call forth the tiger. You can befriend it, you can turn the tiger into a Buddha, or the final thing is you can ride the tiger like a horse. Um, and I think, okay, so this is about tigers, which were scary to Tibetans. What's scary to Westerners today? Maybe stuff from our childhood. Maybe it's a, a bully trauma that we've got. Maybe it's our relationship with our parents. So when people get to that stage and they start transforming fear, to me, that's no less a dream yoga practice um, if they're transforming fear of um, their sexuality or fear of uh, lack of confidence than it is, you know, calling forth a, a, a lie, calling forth a tiger and riding him, as they might say in the traditional texts. Hmm. So that's it's very fascinating that you're having developed this this uh, capacity to lucid dream. You can use it for many different things. Flying through the air, going on a date with Tom Hardy, you, you said, which sounds like a good idea. And, uh, you know, psychological integration, or you can do these very interesting traditional um, operations of manifesting scary things, transforming things, changing the size of them. So it's, it's really... Uh, it's almost like the holodeck in Star Trek in a way. It's exactly the holodeck, man, and hardly anyone ever references that. Yes, it's exactly like the holodeck in Star Trek. And if people don't get that because they're not geeky Trekkies like us, um, go onto YouTube and put in holodeck Star Trek and you'll see what it is. It's this, uh, for those who don't know, it's this uh, kind of, it's like a kind of a, it's a computer program. I'm not sure what it is, but it's this like place a lucid where you dream can manifest. It is exactly like a lucid <laughs> dream, yeah. And I remember there's one scene where one of the guys going in there and he just he's just chatting up girls at a bar. That that's what one of the uh, the guys on, on the ship is using the holodeck for. So mm. you could use lucid dreaming for that too. You could train in, what is that thing people use? The game or something. Isn't that the book mm. about how to how to pick up girls? You could use yeah. the lucid dream as for as something as mundane as that 
or as something as profound as exploring your Buddha nature. And that's mm-hmm. what's the that's what's so fascinating about the lucid dream is actually it's this kind of blank canvas. Um, and the first couple of years when I learned it at 16, I was just using it for like the dude in the holodeck, you know, just, mm. you know, sex and skateboarding, as I often say. Then luckily, when I got into Tibetan Buddhism a bit later, they taught me these uh, more, well, much, much more beneficial applications for it. And I stopped all that stuff. Mm. Yeah, you're mentioning um, uh, discovering, you know, lucid dreaming in your teens there. What, how did you come across it? And what was it that so fascinated you about it at that particular age? Yeah, so in Dreams of Awakening, I talk about me finding it in my teens, which isn't actually totally true, Um, but it was slightly more romantic than the truth. The truth is, I actually got into Lucid Dream a little bit earlier when I was about six or seven, um, Mm. because I used to wet the bed. Um, Not during the day, but in the night time, I used to have to wear a nappy till I was like seven years old. Um, And this was partly because I would really need to pee in the middle of the night and needing to pee would come into my dreams. So I'd be in the dream and I'd wake up in the dream and I'd go, oh, I'm dreaming and I really need to pee. And then I think to myself, well, if I wake up, the sharks under the bed will get me. I had this whole thing about sharks under the bed and they would bite your ankles if you tried to get out of bed. Um, So in the dream, I would um, uh, kind of rationalize to myself that far better than the sharks under the bed getting me, I would simply find a toilet and pee in the dream. So I would go around the dream looking for a toilet, have a pee, uh, and then, of course, often I would actually wet the bed and I'd wake myself up. Um, This went on for kind of months, actually. And although it's not a very kind of romantic way, I'm almost certain that's how I first developed the capacity to do it. Um, And often you find kids who had recurring nightmares or recurring bedwetting scenarios often become lucid dreamers in later life. And that was a study I found, you know, only a couple of years ago. So I guess it was actually that that first led me to know what it was. And then when I was 12, I uh, for my 12th birthday, I wanted this thing called a Nova Dreamer, which I think you can still get them. I'm not sure if they're you can probably get them on on eBay. They're like these sleep masks with special um, sensors in them, sense rapid eye movement on your your eyelids. And then once they they sense rapid eye movement, which is indicative of dreaming sleep, they flash red light, um, which is kind of bright enough to penetrate your eyelids, but seemingly not bright enough to wake you up. Um, And this can lead to lucid dreams because the light flashes through to your dreams and you go, oh, uh, that must be the mask I'm dreaming. So I asked for one of those for my 12th birthday. Uh, but I didn't get it. I remember my dad, you know, seeing that it was like $250 and being like, nah, that's not happening. Um, so I just forgot about it. And then when I was like 15, 16, then I started to get interested in psychedelics and the mind and UFOs and dreaming and lucid dreaming. Um, mm. and yeah, it was just a just a teenage fascination. Um, but looking back and I don't know, man, they say everything's karma, don't they? So I guess there was probably some sort of some sort of thing. I guess it was kind of strange for a, for a kid that young to be interested in it. So maybe it was, um, maybe it's something else. But I think it was just a teenage fascination more than anything else. Mm. And you developed quite a capacity for it, didn't you? You're quite you're quite sort of no, well known for not just sort of teaching lucid dreaming, but for actually uh, being a very prolific lucid dreamer, if we can use that word. Well, I'm kind of feast and famine, so. Um, <laughs> You know, I haven't had a lucid dream for um, for 10 days. Um, I've just been on holiday. I haven't been doing any of the practice. I've been chilling out in Croatia. Um, But before then, I spent three weeks in America running retreats. And Mm. then I was having, you know, 
two or three a night because I was on on duty and I was running a retreat and felt like I had to do it. So I'm I'm not actually a natural lucid dreamer. I don't have them all the time. But when I do the practice, I have them. Um, and that's how I know the practice works. And that's how I keep the full confidence in the practice. Um, and I'm constantly trying to develop the techniques. You know, if something stops working for me, I'm thinking, oh, it might stop working for somebody else. So I need to go back into the laboratory of sleep and try and uh, make sure, try and kind of refine the technique. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I'm a prolific lucid dreamer, but I think I'm quite good at teaching it. That I can, that I can honestly say. I think I'm quite good at teaching it because, um, because I'm not a natural. Uh, you know, I'm not some sort of reincarnated Tibetan who just came out of the womb with the ability to, to lucid dream. It took me kind of a few years to to, to learn it, and I, I have to keep up my practice to do it. So I think I'm I think I'm quite good at teaching it. Mm. One of the one of the things I appreciate about the way you teach um, uh, teach those things is you also don't have it. You have a deep uh, passion and connection for Buddhism, which I'd like to ask you about actually. But you don't insist on that perspective. And you you teach in quite a, a no, an open kind of non sectarian way. You include, of course, all the, all the Buddhism, and you you know you're open about your your passion for Buddhism that comes through, but you don't insist on a certain application, or you don't insist on a certain route or a certain belief system and uh, belonging to a group and so on. Oh, that's cool, man. I'm I'm glad you appreciate that. You know, there, there'd be nothing more ironically un-Buddhistic than to force Buddhism upon someone. You know, that'd be nuts. And in fact, in Buddhism, if anything, there's a kind of an anti-crusader precept, um, which is uh, you don't really kind of advertise. Like, for example, the Buddhist center where I live, obviously there are the signs outside saying this is a Buddhist center, but you'll never see the monks and nuns kind of handing out flyers in the street like that's that's not really done it said that buddhism should never be proffered unless uh, somebody asks uh you know uh, to know about it um so i think in my mm. teaching that would be the same i'll share my experience which is one you know definitely within the buddhist tradition um mm. but yeah i mean some of the most amazing lucid dreams i've heard of have been from christian practitioners sufi practitioners uh, mexican shamanic practitioners um definitely tibetan buddhism has no monopoly over lucid dreaming it has simply created one of the most scientific models to get people lucid but once you're lucid i think it's about following your heart and if your heart is in the christian tradition or shamanic tradition then those should be the practices you're doing in the lucid dream um rather than the buddhist ones mm. one of your um Speaking about following your heart, I think one of the interesting aspects of your life is is your passion for Buddhism. Um, and I know for a number of years you ran a, a Buddhist hip hop group. <laughs> yeah, um, you said you live in a, a Buddhist center. And I've heard you talk about um, your life. You know, growing up, you had some difficult difficult upbringing and so on. And you trained in hypnosis in your early twenties. You competed in kickboxing. It's quite an uh, unusual CV for uh, um, for someone teaching these sorts of things. And I'm just curious. How did you first encounter Buddhism and, and what were your earlier influences on, on that path? Yes, that's right. I guess I've got an interesting CV. Um, yeah, it started quite young. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a, a difficult upbringing at all. I created difficulties for myself. I grew up in a, in a oh. wonderfully safe kind of bohemian middle class um, household where everything was provided, whether it was love or, or materialistically and all this kind of stuff. Um, in my teens, I created problems for myself um, because mm. I got into drugs and I got into this kind of uh, thing with these gangs, which, um, which is actually quite bad at a certain point. It got really, really dangerous when I was around 15. Um, but my God, that was, that was all kind of self-created stuff. But yeah, around the age of 
um, 15, 16, I started to get interested in um, probably Shaolin Kung Fu was the first thing that did it. You know, you see the uh, the monks supposedly from the Shaolin Temple. I don't know how authentic it is. Mm -hmm. And they do those shows at like the Peacock Theatre in London and stuff like that. And I saw right. those monks and I was like, oh, wow, they're Buddhist and they're really hard. And for me at 15, when I was just coming out of this gang thing, and that, that seemed cool. And then I was listening to a Wu-Tang Clan, the hip-hop group, who were... Um, they actually, it was actually Taoist quotes, but at the time I thought it was Buddhist quotes that they were using at the beginning of their, of their records. But actually it was kind of Taoist quotes um, about the mind and, and meditation and stuff like that. So suddenly what I thought was Buddhism seemed cool. You know, there were martial arts and there were rappers. And coming out of the, the kind of, I think the shock of, the, of the, um, the thing that happened with the gangs is that I was like, God, I'm just done with that, man. I need some peace and love in my life. Like kind of aggression has got me nowhere. Um, so that channeling into martial arts, that channeling into uh, meditation and starting to write, because I was uh, writing lyrics from really young since I was like 13 and stuff. I mm -hmm. always tried to be like a rapper and stuff like that. So suddenly around the age of yeah, 15, 16, it suddenly became cool to be cool. So I tried to start writing lyrics that were about uh, being kind to people and, and being, you know, being loving. And, and I started to look into Buddhism and I read this book called um, The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. And I remember I got that when I was 16 and I was so embarrassed when I bought it. Um, I was with my brother and we were about to take a long flight to like, it's like Australia or something, really long flight with my mum and dad for holiday. And I hid it from my brother under my arm because I didn't want him to see that I was reading The Art of Happiness. And about three hours into the flight, once I was like halfway through it, just these bells were ringing in my head. And I was like, oh my God, this dude is just saying what I really believe, but I've never kind of known I believed it or, or, or knew how to express it. So really that book changed stuff. Um, so I started to, yeah, that, that, that book was like when I was 16. And it was as if... I was so attracted to Buddhism and I was so aware of this thing about no intoxication or not getting, basically not, that, that kind of drugs wouldn't be part of it, that it was weird. I kind of almost gave myself this like two-year period between 16 to 18 where I was like, okay, you're probably going to get into Buddhism and this is probably going to be a life path. There's something in you that knows this. So have two years of real partying. Um, so I did, like 16 to 18, I was totally wild. Um, not in the kind of violent, aggressive way I was uh, earlier, but with just total sex, drugs and rock and roll for those, for those two years at college. And then the day I left college, so I was about 18 and a half, um, the day I left, I stuck to my commitment and I shaved my head, I went vegetarian and I started going to a Buddhist center. Like literally overnight, I changed. Now, of course, mm. I didn't because thing, vegetarian was so difficult and I really i was still kind of a little bit addicted to the drug scene so I, I bounced back a few times but within about six months um i had yeah i'd really kind of changed and started to apply that same um zeal that i had for the party scene for the rave scene for the drug scene to the spiritual scene um which is strange but i think you know i remember one teacher saying if you're good at samsara you'll be good at nirvana he said actually those who are really successful in the kind of fuckwittery of samsara 
actually they can apply that quite well to the path of nirvana whereas if you're a bit of a bum in samsara and just can't be bothered to do anything then you also won't be bothered to do anything in the nirvanic path so i think i kind of transferred that that lust for partying to a lust for um for meditation and buddhism and got quite into it then when i was kind of 18 19 and then i took refuge which is like where you formally become a buddhist it's kind of like a christening thing and you get a new name and they take a bit of your hair and you take these certain vows and then yeah from that moment onwards i started kind of taking it quite seriously you mentioned there is that when you read the the book the art of happiness by yeah. the dalai lama it was as if you'd already known this now one of the um ideas that that flows through buddhism is this idea of reincarnation rebirth and so on do you feel that do you feel like you had some sort of past connection there that was it that sort of a feeling or is it more a sense of it just convinced you as you are now it convinced you by by what you know by its by its own merit in the moment yeah i'm not sure like sometimes sometimes i look at things i was doing as a kid and stuff and like buying incense when I was like 10 years old and stuff like that and you can very easily create this kind of romantic narrative about oh I must have been connected to Buddhism in my previous life and this kind of thing and you just feel the ego pumping up and I go okay I'm not going down that route at all so I know I don't remember any past life stuff I have no idea um, I think it was just just something that made real sense to me um, mm. my teacher said you know he said he's got a, a different view on it i guess but that's you know that's for him to have that view not for me for me i think it was just something that seemed to really make sense and something that just seemed like my heart had known it before my mind did i think mm interesting so your your teacher does well we don't go there i'm i'm taking i'm getting the hint you don't want to talk about that it's it's not, it's not that it's just like i don't know what good would it be man who knows what we were in our past lives it's like yeah it's um yeah, he thinks I might be doing the dream stuff uh, in another life. But I, who knows? It's like, you know, apparently we've been doing this past life thing for so many times that mm. I have most probably been your mother in a previous life and you have most probably yeah. been my mother. Um, so if we've been that, then probably we've been lucid dreamers in a previous life or teachers in a previous life, as well as murderers and prostitutes in a previous life, too. So kind of kind of so what, I think, a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, yes. I'm, yeah, I don't know. I think it's about this life now. Can we be the most helpful human beings we possibly can be, regardless of what we were in a previous life? Can we be helpful and loving and kind now? Mm. You, you often use the phrase, um, speaking of your teacher, Lama Yeshe, uh, use the uh, more awake, uh, more aware, more kind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that was his quote for when I asked him, kind of, what's the point of all this lucidity training? And yeah, he said to be more awake, to be more aware, to be more aware, to be more kind, to be more kind. That's the whole point. And it was like he said, he, it wasn't like he was saying that's the whole point of lucid dream training. It was as if he was saying that's the whole point of life. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, that's again, it was just one of those moments that really resonated. And I thought, yeah, can we just be kinder than we were yesterday to ourselves and others? And God, I'm definitely not there yet, but I'm trying and I'm kinder than I was. Um, so. And that seems to make me happier and other people around me happier. So mm. that seems like a pretty good teaching. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a lovely orientation, lovely way of expressing it. And one, one of the things that I think, you know, is particularly fascinating about you is your deep devotional relationship um, to Lama Yeshe, um, your guru. He's the current abbot of Samuel Ling. And, you know, you have his picture on stage with you and you teach and you refer to him often with great reverence. 
And, you know, a lot, a lot of modern people have difficulty understanding that kind of guru-disciple relationship. And that whole system, I think, has been an, an occasional source of controversy and confusion, not only in Tibetan Buddhism, but in, in other traditions where that model's employed. And as someone who's on the inside of, of this very unique and special kind of situation, um, how did that relationship come about? And what does it mean for you practically as well as spiritually? Yeah, it's interesting, the guru thing. You know, even the term guru, um, especially in Italy, actually. Uh, in Italy, hmm. when you translate the term, well, it's not translated, but when I teach in Italy and I use the term guru, guru in Italian is almost synonymous with something dodgy. It is synonymous with kind of um, sex scandals and stuff like that. So actually the term is almost used not in a prerogative way, but often they will translate the term guru into the Italian word for, for master. Um, and I think, God, you know, what have we done to this term? Where even in other languages, it's synonymous with something kind of negative. Um, so, yeah, it is interesting, especially in the West and especially at the moment. You know, I used to be, I was at Rigpa for four years. And just mm. recently in the press, you know, there are big things happening at Rigpa at the moment with certain people saying certain things about the behavior of one of the teachers and this kind of stuff. So it's 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 always there. It's always a bone of contention. I mean, I think for some people, the guru, student, teacher thing works really well. For me, it works really well simply because my ego is so massive. So for me, it really helps to be bowing at somebody's feet. It really helps for me to be actually giving up a lot of that ego and and asking for somebody else's help. You know, people think that it's kind of the guru-student relationship is disempowering. In fact, it's the most empowering thing you can have because what it disempowers is the strength of my ego. Yes, it's disempowering for the little Charlie, for the little I, for that, for that fear-based ego. Absolutely, it disempowers that. But what it does is it empowers my Buddha nature. It empowers that thing that's, that's much bigger within me. Um, and it, yeah, you know, there's something in the in Dreaming Through Darkness where I talk about the golden shadow, which is like the divine aspects within ourselves that we have rejected, denied, disowned. So when we think of the shadow, we think of, oh, what do we deny within ourselves? We deny our, our perversions, our shame, our fear, our, our guilt, all this kind of stuff. But we also deny our Buddha nature. We, divide, we deny our divine potential. And for, in fact, for many of us, that's more threatening to who we think we are than admitting to the shame of our past. And in the book, I talk about the relationship with Lama Yeshe at the lowest level, at the lowest level at least, being about him reflecting my golden shadow back to me. Because I'm so unable to see that I have Buddha nature within myself because my ego is still so massive and so kind of blocking the light that it creates a shadow, that something which is caused by something blocking the light. And that shadow is that I don't have Buddha nature. So what I do is I project my Buddha nature onto Lama Yeshe. And Lama Yeshe, as any master who's worth their salt, will simply reflect the projection back to you. They will not soak up the projection. They will reflect it back. So then I see my Buddha nature reflected in him. So it's a very skillful uh, means of working with projection. Now, I think the problem comes if you project your golden shadow onto somebody who has not fully integrated their own shadow, both dark and light, your projection will not be reflected back at you. It will stick. 
and if the projection sticks that can lead to the not only the disempowerment of the person projecting the student but also the ego aggrandizement of the person you're projecting onto the so-called guru the so-called master so i think that's where the problem comes not in the guru student relationship but in the fact that there are students projecting their buddha nature onto those who have not recognized their buddha nature um in which case then i think things can things can be unhelpful and can be even dangerous in some cases um but with lama yeshe it was you know some people say it, well, actually, it is. It's you know, meeting your guru is a bit like falling in love. And although the movies make it seem that you fall in love, you know, love at first sight and stuff like that, in life, it's it's often different to that. And it was with Lama Yeshe. You know, the first time I met him, I wasn't that impressed. I thought he was, you know, his brother Akon Rinpoche, very well known Tibetan tulku, um, very well respected traditionalist, set up Samaling Monastery. Um, and he was who I took refuge with. Um, then mm. when I met his brother, Lama Yeshe, I thought he was kind of the smiley version, the kind of the lightweight version, the one um, that would be for more like beginners. Um, and of course, that was just because I didn't have the eyes to see it. You know, my, again, my ego was, was projecting all, all of my fears and insecurities rather than actually a pure perception. But then I just sort of hang out with him and seeing him when he was kind of off the throne, not just on the throne being a llama, but just kind of hanging out. And I thought, this guy's really got something going on here. And then I started to have teachings from him. And the first time that I got instruction from Lama Yeshe, the first time he said, in your next lucid dream, do X, Y, Z. That one instruction, it was literally that, it was one sentence, in your next lucid dream, do X, Y, Z, and then come back and tell me what happens. That counted for more than all of the books on the subject I'd read up to then and all the 10 years of lucid dream practice I'd done up to that point. Counted for, for nothing compared to that one instruction. So I think it's when I actually entered into the relationship with him as a teacher that I really started to see how kind of powerful he was and, mm. and really saw kind of beyond my projections that this was somebody who had really mastered their mind and had done done kind of incomparable work on themselves and then you start to fall in love then it really is like falling in love and you get this kind of yearning to be with them um and also you get all the rest of the the stuff that comes with falling in love like that deep rejection like oh why aren't i being acknowledged why aren't i being talked to all this stuff comes up it's mm. fascinating to watch um but yeah it's like that and then you just it's something very special can develop from that point um but I think it's just so important to make sure the person that you are entering into a master-student relationship has mastered whatever the teaching is that you're receiving from them. Like, mm. not not that they're on the path, like me, like I'm on the path of lucid dreaming. I have not mastered lucid dreaming. So I'm in no position to be in that relationship with anybody yet. Who knows? Maybe in 50 years' time, maybe I'll, I'll master it, but I'm so far away from it now. But with Lama Yeshe, he has mastered the six yogas of Naropa. He is the only Tibetan, uh, the only Lama outside of Tibet who have done three dark retreats, which are these 49 days isolated retreats in the pitch black where you go through the death process and stuff like that. Like He has mastered it. Um, and you're encouraged to, you know, ask other lamas about the teacher, uh, you know, see their students. Are their students well developed or are they even more neurotic than you? Because if they are, then 
perhaps that reflects on on the student teacher relationship in fact i think i saw one teaching that said you should watch the teacher for up to nine years before you decide to be their student nine years mm -hmm. of watching them testing them checking them out you know really being sure that they have mastered the practice you want to learn before you commit to them whereas nowadays we might go on a weekend workshop with you know a meditation teacher or something and then the next week we're suddenly saying oh this is the this is the man or woman i'm going to follow for the rest of my life and i think that's um yeah that can be that can lead to problems mm. you're talking of, of his various you know attainments and so on and it sounds to me like the thing that really got you the thing that really um opened you to the possibility of this sort of relationship what's as you said just being with him socially hanging out with him what were some of the the things there that really struck you, um, that, that stood out to you there, or, or that started to catch your attention as you were in that more informal setting? I think, actually, one of the times, it's a bit of a weird one, but it's we'd had this kind of interview. So although, um, uh, although I kind of get to hang out with him quite a lot because I live at the Buddhist center, and although he only teaches here once a once a year, he passes through the center about once every three months maybe so i'll get to have meals with him and, and stuff like that but of course we're still in a formal relationship so every time he visits i will book in for an interview with him um and it's very interesting to feel to see how in the interview with him it's almost i used to think he switches something on when you're in a private interview with him what i realize is he's not switching something on is that he's actually just being himself and that for most of the time when he's not in a formal interview situation with you, he is trying to play down who he is because his energy is so powerful that if he were to be like that, be in that state normally, it might be difficult to communicate with him. And I was like, God, that's insane. It's not actually that he's switching something on when we're in a private thing together. It's that he's just relaxing into his natural energy state and you can feel it. Like you can literally feel the energy from him. Um, anyway, so we'd had this interview and I was like, God, this is really strong. And then, um, then we finished chatting and um, the next person, I was his last person to see in the interview. So we were just kind of standing there looking out the window and I felt a bit kind of embarrassed as I often do. Where I don't quite know what to say to him after we've had a formal interview. So I looked out the window and it was really muddy. It was really uh, rainy and it was muddy because at Samaling they'd be doing some building work. Um, and there were these big diggers and it was all, all kind of like a quagmire. And I looked out the window and I went, oh, God, that's muddy, isn't it? And he just looked at me and he said, oh, you still see mud. And then sighed. And I was like, what did he mean by that? And then what I realized is that he doesn't see it as muddy. You know, when we look out the same window, I see a muddy quagmire that might get my shoes dirty. And he sees something else. He didn't say what he saw, but just the way he said, oh, you, oh, you still see mud. And I thought, what do you see, man? You're literally seeing reality differently to me. Um, and I'm, or, or that I'm still judging something muddy as bad. He could tell in my tone that I was saying, oh, it's muddy, it's not good. And his point was, oh, you're still, you're still judging things. Um, and just little moments like that that add up and you think, God, this guy's really, he's doing something differently here. It's a bit like a dancer, you know. If you, sometimes, if you spend a lot of time around dancers, you can see who's a dancer just from the way they stand. Even before they've started dancing, just from the way they stand, you can tell if they've danced or, or if they're like a kind of in, a professional dancer or not. Something about the poise, something about how they move through space. I think that's the same with meditators. When someone's really, really mastered their mind, even when they're just standing still in the metaphor of the dancer, you can still tell that they have 
got this kind of mental poise. Um, and also, he's just cool with everyone. You know, I've just seen him interacting with kids. I've seen him coming out the toilet. I've seen him first thing in the morning, last thing at night. And at no point have I ever seen anything that's made me think, oh, he's a bit neurotic there. Or, oh, he was a bit offended by that. Or he's projecting there. Just, you know, who knows? Maybe there are times when I don't see him and he's, you know, watching EastEnders with his feet up, yelling at the characters or something. But I'm yet to see it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, of the, uh, one of the interesting difficulties, I think, of, of, of the process, you talked about projection there. And, and you know, there's, there's something called the Dunning-Kruger um, effect. What's that? Um, where um, essentially the skills it requires to uh, the skill the skill set required to be good at a particular skill set is also the same skill set required to assess your uh, competency uh-huh. and in fact to recognize competency in others. So one of the difficulties I think um, in this dance that you're talking about, this dance um, with the guru, is is that you know a beginner? So one of the Dunning Kruger uh, effects is a beginner tends to vastly overestimate his own um, oh, competency yeah. and and often uh, doesn't isn't capable of recognizing a high degree of competency because they they don't they just simply don't know what that's like they don't have the context for it oh, and similarly someone in the middle someone who's who's gained a certain degree of competency can sometimes aware as as they are of how much they still don't know. Um, can lose track sometimes of how far they've actually come. You know, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and maybe that's why when I first met Lama Yeshe, I just thought he was—I had no feelings at all. There was no, there was no feelings of this. Is this guy's going to be my master? There was—I just couldn't see it. Um, and then maybe later, when I'd done a teeny bit more meditation, something I could see a little, little glimpse. Who knows? I don't know. Mm. You mentioned the um, the controversy at Rigpa um, with the the resignation of their of their founder, a very famous teacher, um, f- after ver- various allegations of misconduct and so on. And that's something that seems to plague so many religious institutions and and uh, and groups. And it's it's rarely a month that goes by when we don't hear of, of this tulku having an affair, that Zen teacher yeah. running off with a student, and so on. And I know that's an area you thought quite a, quite a bit about. Um, you're you're teaching. You're a young guy. You're out there. Um, how do you relate to this conundrum? What do you see as the problems here, and and do you see any solutions? Is there anything you watch for? I don't know. I think it's probably power. I think it's, you know, without getting into cliches, a power corrupts and all this kind of stuff. I think it's. I don't know. I think it's it's, it's a power game between not only the the teacher and the student, but the student and the teacher and. I don't know. I remember something Lama Yeshe said to me when he, he said, you know, the best, he said, he was basically saying like the best thing about being him is that he's a nobody, is that he's not a famous Lama. He doesn't run a massive organization. I mean, he is abbot of Samaling now, but even that he was asked to do. He never, he never wanted to do that. In fact, he wanted to do 21 years in retreat because he was told by a, uh, a head of the lineage that um, if he did 21 years retreat on a certain deity, he could reach full enlightenment. And as soon as he was told that, he said, okay, see you later, see you in 21 years. So that was his aim, to go into retreat for 21 years. He only managed 11 before he had to come out and help with certain administrative things, and now he's running the center and stuff. Um, So he is the abbot. But he said to me, you know, one of the best things is that he's a nobody. And because he's a nobody, um, he can do things in a different way. He's not kind of limited by um, certain other things that might be... um, 
might be limits for people uh, associated with a certain lineage and also that there's not that thing you know he's not a famous llama he's not on youtube i mean he has got a couple of books but he didn't write them they're just trans transcripts from his his um his talks and stuff like that and he's got a very interesting view that he he's says the most helpful thing he can do is to be to be a nobody of course he's he's not a nobody these are his his terms but he mm. really rejoices in the fact that he's not head of a massive organization um mm. because i think it's just maybe it's the the responsibilities that come with that that can lead to problems in relationships that maybe it's not the teacher not the fault of the teacher and perhaps it's not the fault of the students it's there's a fault in the relationship of a big organization uh and the very specific needs of the individuals in the student-teacher relationship. I don't know, really, man. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm kind of out of my depth here, and I'm trying to be as diplomatic as I can. I don't know. I don't know why it happens. Um, maybe that in, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Maybe that, in some cases, the scandal is genuinely created as a way to be a teaching. Um, or maybe that's just what devout students say when their teacher is involved in a scandal. Mm. I don't know. It's, I'm yeah. kind of out of my depth on this one. Mm -hmm. You're implying the, the crazy wisdom idea that sometimes a, a certain sort of category of master might do some very scandalous things to reflect some uh, teaching. And of course, it's, it is tricky when you throw in projection and you throw in you know people coming... Uh, often people are drawn to religious institutions, uh, meditation, teachers, and so on because they're they're troubled. They have troubles, you know. And often um, those in those positions are they're just people, aren't they? And um, and yeah, you're out of your depth, so I, I don't want to press you on it. But I, I wondered if you had any interesting any insights for yourself because you're you're teaching all around the place, and you're you're probably more famous than Lama Yeshe, really, at this point. Certainly, <laughs> in the third, uh, well, wouldn't you? <laughs> I well if 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 we go if we put fame on Instagram following or something then yes yeah. uh but apart from that absolutely <laughs> not um you know I quite like the fact I hope that that you know when I teach as you've seen I always have this photo of Lama Yeshe and rarely mm -hmm. a talk goes by that I don't reference him yeah. and when I do the workshops here we get a lot of people into the Buddhist center who've never been to a Buddhist center before and I think mm -hmm. If that's my little contribution, if I can be a connector, you know, mm -hmm. if that's if I can be the person who has helped people hear the name Lama Yeshe or or be the reason that people first step foot in a Buddhist center. I don't care if they never have a lucid dream in their life, but maybe some of them come back the next week for meditation practice. Or maybe some of them end up taking refuge and entering into a relationship with Lama Yeshe that can really benefit them. Um, I'm happy to be that that tiny kind of pawn in the game that might be able to help connect people to the spiritual path. Um, and that feels nice to be able to do that. Um, and Lama Yeshe often, he jokingly calls me his, uh, what does he call me, his joyful ambassador. He hmm. says, Charlie is my ambassador. He does all the traveling. He goes many places. Uh, I can do my retreat. Charlie goes many places. He tells people how to practice in their sleep. So I think he acknowledges that too, that, you mm -hmm. know, I've, I've got no wisdom to share, um, but I travel quite a lot. And I teach people basic practices that seem to help them on the Dharma path. Um, so maybe mm. that's my little contribution. Mm. And you know, you're you're playing it down a little, but you're you're officially authorized to to teach the um, the Karma Kagyu Dream Yoga material, which is, from what I understand, quite high honor and not uh, it's quite rare that that's given out that that authorization. And how did that come about? And uh, and why why do you think 
Yulama Lama Yeshe is, is so keen for these previously quite hidden t- teachings. I've heard you saying that they're typically taught only on retreat, actually, mm. um, to be so widely available today. You're saying you're sort of some ambassador going out there, some sort of spaghetti, you know, the spaghetti restaurant for the mafia, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> but you're, you are a card-carrying, uh, authorized, uh, credentialed guy, aren't you? Yeah, the authorization to teach thing is interesting. Um, I got the authorization when I was 25, um, which is weird, man. I don't know what. I mean, I think maybe Lama Yeshe saw the potential of the practice like 10 years down the line um, Mm -hmm. and saw the potential that I might have to teach it kind of 10 years down the line because those, you know, I, I don't know you know, I don't know why I, I got it at that point. Maybe it was just practical. Maybe it was that they realized that um, someone so young teaching just wouldn't be taken seriously um, unless he had this kind of seal of approval. Um, and I think Lama Yeshe... Um, oh, yeah, actually, when we had the authorization thing, because basically I was told by Rob Nair, my other teacher, he said, oh, Lama Yeshe is, has, has said he'll give you authorization to teach. And I literally didn't know what it was. I was like, what does that mean? And he goes, oh, it's, it just means you can teach in Buddhist centers and stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, uh, cool, okay. And he says, oh, but you need to see Lama Yeshe about it. Now I realize this was like the authorization interview kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked him, I said, uh, she said, do you think this is a good idea? I was like, yeah. I was like are you sure this is a good idea? Because I'm like, I've only taught, because I'd only taught a couple of workshops when I got it. Um, mm. And I have no, you know, no kind of history of, of, of teaching and Buddhist and stuff. Are you sure this is a good idea? And he said, he goes, uh, uh, Charlie, some people have a lot of knowledge. And I think he was talking about me. I was literally so arrogant. I thought it was talking about me. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah. I've read all the books. Yeah, I've got the knowledge. He went, no, no, no. You have no knowledge, Charlie. And I was like, oh, God, just like burnt, you know, ego smashed on the floor. And I was like, oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no knowledge. And he says, but you, you can do the practice. This is good, uh-huh. how you teach. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, man, nine years down the line, still the same thing. I've got no kind of knowledge or wisdom to share, but I can do this practice um, when I yeah. when I apply it. And I can teach others to do the practice. And that seems to help people. So I think that's probably yeah. why. I got the authorization to do it. Um, and I mm. think it connects you to something. It allows it allows a kind of a safety net. You know, when people mm. learn through me, I have no protection to offer them. I'm a complete spiritual idiot. But apparently, if they're learning through me, because I've been authorized through Lama Yeshe, there's a connection there. Lama Yeshe once described it to me as a safety net. Mm. Um, so I think that offers people a, a safety net. So when they learn it through me, they can go to kind of quite deep places and be safe not because of me at all but because of the kind of energy of the lineage that Lama Yeshe kind of activated um, mm. through the authorization I don't know maybe it's that mm. um, yeah may, and who knows you know they can take it back maybe there'll be a point where he goes like experiment over okay now no more authorization to teach and I'm like oh shit but yeah so far nine years down the line it's it, you know it seems to be yeah. still in place. Well, you're you're very humble about it, uh, Charlie. But, I'm, uh, but I'll, so I'll say, but your, I think the way you teach is really, really excellent. Very accessible. You really know your stuff, which is you know you know the practice, and that's something that is is very valuable. I think. 
Uh, we're out of time now. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they find out where you're teaching your courses and uh, find your books and so on? Yeah, so everything's on my website, which is my name, charliemorley.com. Uh, or apparently someone recently said, if you just Google Charlie Lucid Dreaming, then everything comes up. Because apparently I'm the only Charlie, I'm the only Charlie teaching Lucid Dreaming. So yeah, Charlie Lucid Dreaming or charliemorley.com. Uh, and then there's all the workshops and online courses and books and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also I'd tell listeners, lucid dreaming is something that you you teach yourself you mm. need to learn the practices but then you really teach it yourself so you know i'm not the only one out there go online go on ugh, just be careful when you're online especially some of the youtube videos use your discernment um but learn the practices whether it's through my work or someone else's work and go to sleep and do them you know this is the cool thing about dream yoga is that with other forms of yoga, let's say physical yoga, maybe only once a week people have the time to go to their, you know, uh, vinyasa flow yoga uh, uh, yoga class. And they wish they could do more, but only once they get to go and get guided by the teacher and go to the studio. The cool thing about the, the dream yoga studio is you have access to it every single night. Every night mm -hmm. when you go to sleep, you have access to the yoga studio and you are your own yoga teacher. So go in there, do it. Get to know your subject matter. If you only get seven hours sleep a night, if you get two extra hours, you double your chances of getting lucid. S you know, spend more time in that sleep state if you can. You know, mm -hmm. go to bed earlier. Don't stay in bed later, but maybe go to bed earlier and start really exploring the sleep and dream and see that third of your life that you spend sleeping, not as wasted time, but as a potential laboratory for enlightened action because it is and it can be. And if you start to explore sleep in that way, it can change your life. Um, that I definitely can say for sure. Yes, it's so wonderful that every night there's that, that's that exciting possibility of, of entering that whole venue of exploration and, um, and uh, depth uh, of of the mind. It's it's really quite exciting, and I, I would say, uh, for those of you who listed Charlie and interested in this, his first book, Dreams of Awakening, is really very good. It's a comprehensive manual, all sorts of techniques in there, lots of explanations, very practical. His latest book, Dreaming Through Shadows, is published by Hay House, and and that's available now. Um, all uh, your website links and so on will be in in the show notes. So. Once again, Charlie, thanks so much for this fascinating conversation. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure.